0: Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your blessings on us. Thank you especially for your word. I pray your blessing on Lester, as he preaches from your word. May you anoint him with your spirit and give him power from on high to do so. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greetings to each of you in the name of Jesus, and welcome to our worship service this morning. This morning's message is entitled A Commitment to the Scripture. I'm preaching another message on what we have written down as our church values. As you may recall, two weeks ago, Mel preached the first sermon on a relationship with Jesus Christ and a love for His Word. We have, over the past couple years, taken the time to write down Um, Five things that we value as a church that we feel are an important part of of who we are and will um, continue to be, need to continue to be a part of who we are as a body of believers. So our second value is a commitment to the scriptures. The Holy Bible is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient revelation given to us so that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've chosen to use this as the primary text for this sermon. Uh, two or three verses here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we oftentimes turn to or refer to when we're thinking about how how important and how valuable the written scripture is to us. I just like to take a little bit of time to think about um, the fact that God has given us a revelation of himself through the written word, the spoken word that was oftentimes spoken word that is then written down by, by men who God has chosen for this responsibility. I just did a little bit of research um, and found that the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, is found 58 times in the Old Testament. I'm I'm just conveying this to you to get a little bit of an idea of of how often this word um, proclaims itself as being from God. 58 times and 46 of those times are actually found in the book of Ezekiel, written by the, the priest Ezekiel as he was communicating what God was giving to him. He often said, The word of the Lord came to me. The Lord said, that phrase is found 232 times in the scripture. And I'm sure there's many other similar phrases that we could look at where, where the word of God proclaims, it's the scripture proclaims itself to be the word of God, words from God. God has chosen to communicate to us who he is through a written word. And we don't have to think very hard to, to realize how important that has been over the, the many centuries, over the years, that there is a written copy of what God, uh, of who God is, uh, of a revelation of him. Uh, people groups and languages and, and various translations and versions of the scripture have all made this, and some in one sense have made it very complicated to continue to convey this message. And yet on the other hand, I see that God has been faithful over the years in, in, you know, as there's people spread out over the earth after the flood and as there was more and more groups of people and more and more different languages and more and more translations of, of God's word. God has been faithful in giving us the means to understand it. Um, in in our world today, in our culture, we know that, that the Word of God is very freely available, and we also have many tools that we can use to understand it. We can compare different um, versions and many ways of discerning what God is saying in His Word. Other cultures don't have this as much, more primitive cultures in the world today, some who don't even have the written Word of God in their own language, and yet God has made it possible that they can know who God is, um, tells us in, I think it's in the book of Romans, that, that by creation, by the created world. And it is also an important work that the Bible continues to be translated into languages that people can better understand. The Ten Commandments was one of the, probably the first written copy of God's revelation. God himself wrote it in stone, gave it to his people. He also, at the same time, gave a lot of instruction to Moses that Moses then wrote down and the first five books of the Bible are primarily what Moses recorded, that God gave to him. Um, another example I think of, uh, thinking of the importance of a written word and its impact on people over the years is in 2 Kings chapter 22 and, and 23. Here King Josiah and Hilkiah the priest, uh, they, they find this copy of the written word the law of the Lord in the temple after I'm not sure how many years it had been that that apparently they had no access to a copy of the law. Here a copy was found. They look at it and and, uh, in their time, of course, they couldn't reproduce this copy rapidly. So they gather all the people together and they read it publicly and they find many things written in there that they had neglected. And so King Josiah uh, brought some great reform in that time. Um, because they discovered what the written word of God was saying to them. So we know that written word is vital to communication. And as we look here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to read to you verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is in the context of Paul writing a letter to a young pastor named Timothy and communicating to him um, his desire to have him continue to lead the churches, to establish leadership in the churches, to continue to proclaim the truth. We look in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And in 2 verses 1 and 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Chapter um, 2, verse 14 and 15. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, but to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then chapter three, fifteen, thirteen 13-15. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, Knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is conveying this message to Timothy that you need to continue. There's going to be there's going to be deceivers. There's going to be an enemy that's working against you in proclaiming the word of God. You need to continue to teach it and raise up others who will teach it also. Why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'd like to look at three things that that are mentioned here in in our written um, church values. That is that the word of God is inerrant and that it is authoritative, that it has authority, and that it is a sufficient revelation. So, so I want to look at those three different areas, primarily from this passage here in Second Timothy, but also referring to a few other passages. And then my fourth point is that I want us to see how the Bible tells us a story and the importance of us uh, grasping, understanding that story and what it is telling us. And then conclude by a brief look at history, where the church in the past, um, where they have gone uh, based on on their their belief that the scripture is true, and based on their commitment to the scripture, and then where we as a church um, can go, where we need to go, and why that commitment to the scripture is so vital. The Bible is inerrant, meaning it is true, it is correct, it is flawless question that may often arise is how do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that there's no errors in here? Now, obviously, as it is translated from language to language and as different cultures um, read it and understand it, there's, there's vary, some variation. But the meaning of the scripture, God's message to us, is, has not changed. Yes, men interpret this, and sometimes that's why we use other tools to understand what was the original meaning, what was the message that God intended to convey to us. But we believe that the Bible is true, it is correct and flawless. We cannot, or I should say it is difficult for us to actually prove that. And i like you. I like to describe this to you in this way, that there is, is two ways that the human mind understands things. First of all, we understand things objectively, meaning that objective means it's not influenced by personal feelings, by prejudice. Um, it's not just in our mind, but it can actually be proven. It can be measured. And secondly, we understand things in our mind, we understand them subjectively. That is, they're within the mind. They're our thoughts, our feelings, our perspectives. Can't necessarily be measured or proven. But yet, we understand life in that way, subjectively or objectively. When it comes to understanding the Word of God, I think there's a third way that, that we must come to or that, that God intends for us to understand it, and that is by revelation. Revelation being just simply God, through His Spirit, illuminating to us, showing us what is true. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Chapter 1 and 2 I'm going to be looking at here without reading um, all of it. But here's a passage of Scripture I think that will help us understand why um, proving that God's Word is true in an objective way is not um, probably not possible. There are those who, who do well in, in studying this, and you can probably read books about this, where, where, where writers expound on how we can know that God's word is true. And there's a lot of things we could look at. For example, um, prophecy that has been fulfilled, things that the Bible says said were going to happen and then did happen. And I'm not going to dig into that, today. Um, But some people do that, some writers do that, and that is helpful. That is a way that that our human mind can understand that the Bible is indeed true, and there's many, many examples of that, that what it says actually did come to happen. For example, um, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, you know, years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied that he would come that he would, uh, specifics given there, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would go to Egypt and and other things. And they did happen according to what the word of God said would happen. Um, We also can understand the the word of God to be true subjectively. It, It tells us that we can experience peace when we know God, when we confess our sins and we repent and we come to God, there's a peace and a joy that we can feel. And again, I can tell you I feel that. Um, I can't prove it to you. You can't measure it. That's subjectively understanding that what God said in his word is indeed true. Someone may say that uh, when they came to Christ, they felt like a burden was lifted off of their life. That's understanding it subjectively. Um, But we need to depend upon God's spirit to illuminate us, to reveal to us. And let's just read a few verses here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, where I think this is what the writer here is is trying to say, that there is a revelation. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and notice how he talks about wisdom from man and wisdom from God, the wisdom of the world versus um, the wisdom from God. to save those who, are, who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, I'll just stop there and to make a few comments, and then continue on in chapter 2. Uh, so he talks about the message of the cross, and um, what's the other phrase he uses? Message of the cross in verse 18, and the message, well, I was thinking 21, where he again uses that word message. Message preached to save those who believe. That's the gospel, that's the scripture, that's the word of God he's referring to. That is primarily what the scripture is about, is, is the message of the cross. It's Yes, the Old Testament, but it's, it's pointing us towards that time. And then the New Testament being the story of, of when Christ did come and give himself and died on the cross and rose again. And then the early church and, and how they responded to that. So he's talking about the scripture when he's talking about the message of the cross. And it says it's foolishness to the world. And God chose for it to be that way that it could not be completely understood or proven simply by the way that the world thinks. Now, chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The Bible is in error; and it is true, and we can understand that because the Spirit of God reveals that to us. <clears throat> God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. I had to think of a debate that took place a number of years ago and I think this is just a a good illustration of of what he is saying in this passage and and how that by the world's wisdom we can't really prove that God's word is true but yet by revelation we can. Some of you may remember a debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye uh, back in I think it was 2014. How many of you remember that? Maybe watched it? I know we did, and, and it's still available on YouTube if you want to go back and, and hear that again. Um, very fascinating. Ken Ham, as you may know, is the founder, I, I guess the founder of um, Answers in Genesis. You may be familiar with Creation Museum and, and the Ark Encounter. He's behind that, and he is a very intelligent man who has done a lot of, of studying and research in, in, in um Explaining the creation view versus what is taught in many schools today—the evolution—and that trying to find another explanation for why we are here and how this world came to be, other than what the Scripture says. But Ken Ham is a dedicated believer and has done much work in in conveying that message and bringing it out that the creation story is true and that God is the Creator. Bill Nye, on the other hand, is a, um, does not believe in the scripture. He believes in evolution and has poured a lot of his time and effort into teaching that. And, and his, his plea is that, that we need more scientists. We need more time to study this and we can prove how the world came to be and why we are here. So in this debate between these two men... Um, a lot of interesting back and forth and, and but one thing that, that I remember that Ken Ham kept saying as so there was a, there was a time in the debate when, when there would be a question given to one of them, he had two minutes to respond and then the other one had one minute to respond to that. And and so Bill and I would say, But you know, you can't prove that. You just keep saying that's how but you can't show show me proof and I'll believe it. And Ken Ham would continue to use the phrase, but there's a book. It's written in a book. There is a book that says, and and so that's an example of we had a man there trying to prove objectively that, that what the Word of God says is true. And another man who says, you know, it's been revealed to me. I have faith in what this book says. And they could not come to an agreement on this, really. There was a lot of discussion about who won that debate, and basically in the end I think they, uh, there was comments m- made by both of them and Ken Ham says that he will, it doesn't matter what you say, I will never believe that evolution is true. And, and Bill Nye says, I will believe your, your creation story. I will believe that if you can prove it. And, and they continue to be in disagreement with each other. But that's an example of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians. The wisdom of the world, you just can't really prove it. Yes, there's a lot of um, ways that we can objectively and subjectively understand the Word of God, but it requires revelation and illumination by the Spirit. While there is evidence for God in nature, ultimately it is by faith, by faith in Him that we come to understand Him. Number 2 the bible has authority. We know that human beings are created to be in subjection. There is an authority structure from the very beginning. And sin at its core is is I think always is really boils down to rebellion against authority. And in order for there to be authority, there has to be consequences for rebellion against that authority or for lack of subjection to it. The Bible has authority because it is written by God. If we don't subject ourselves to God, we will not come under the authority of the word of God either. Um, Hebrews 4, verse 11 and 12 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. As talking about a consequence. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a dis- discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That tells us that the Bible has authority. It can discern between right and wrong. It's the standard of right and wrong. And unless we subject ourselves to it, there will be a consequence for disobedience. But I think probably one of the best ways to understand that God's word has authority is the fact that it is inspired. If you look here in 2 Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That little phrase is telling us a lot. If you look in the NIV or in the English Standard Version, it uses the term that all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed by God. Why is it translated that way? Well, this word inspired actually means God-breathed. We, we tend to use that word sometimes in, in, in ways um, beyond what the meaning is here when it uses it in 2 Timothy. And for example, we may talk about... <clears throat> a songwriter being inspired as he writes a song, or, or an artist being inspired as as they draw. But this is God breathed. This means it was spoken by God. <clears throat> in Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. So when, when God spoke the world into existence, he was, in a sense, inspiring. He was Breathing it, he was saying it. All Scripture is inspired by God. Second Timothy chapter one. Um, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to just briefly refer to it. Second Timothy one and verse sixteen. It says, Peter says, we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we may know to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts." knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter's referring back to that experience on on the mountain with, with Jesus, when Jesus was transfigured. And he's saying, we are eyewitnesses. We saw and we saw what Jesus did, we heard what he said, and we know that he is the son of God because of what we saw on that mountain. And so, what we are saying happened is true. The inspired word of God is, words, is what God spoke. Um, no Scripture, he says, is of any private or interpretation. In other words, it's not just man saying, uh, making it up, but these men of God were, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God breathed, God spoke to them, God inspired his word. I think it's important for us to make the distinction that that it was not the men who wrote the Bible, in other words, Peter and John and, and Paul and Moses, it was not those men that were inspired, but the writings themselves were inspired. It was God breathing. Uh, they moved as the Holy Spirit directed them. Yes, they were they were godly men, but they were mere men. They were men who made mistakes. They weren't writers of the scripture because they were superhuman they weren't the ones chosen to write the scriptures because they were more righteous than others but God chose to use man to write this but God told him what to write so the fact that the scriptures are inspired gives them authority because it is the words of God One falsehood that that we should look out for, a phrase that, or a a pattern, a way of thinking that we sometimes hear of, is that the Bible contains the Word of God versus the Bible is the Word of God. It may seem like a, a small, insignificant difference, but if the Bible only contains the Word of God, there's parts of it that are not the Word of God, that are not inspired. And if parts of it (coughs) are not inspired, how can we rely on it? How can it lead us into truth if it contains the untruth? And if only parts of it are inspired, then what parts are and what parts aren't, and who determines that? This way of thinking leads to a gospel that becomes me-centered or self-centered, Whoever's seeking to interpret it will interpret it according to how, what they want it to say. And therefore, it comes, the scripture then lacks it all authority if it only contains the word of God, if only parts of it are true. The Bible is the word of God, not the Bible contains the word of God. The third point then is that what the Bible contains is sufficient. It is sufficient revelation for us again referring to these verses in 2nd Timothy through the scripture we are complete we are thoroughly equipped for every good work what does that mean to be complete and thoroughly equipped I think of my toolbox in my garage and that is a good example of the fact that I am not thoroughly equipped Um, sometimes if I think of somebody that's thoroughly equipped with tools I I think of Noel, I don't think he's here this morning but Noel Faust in his shop you could say he is thoroughly equipped sometimes when I need a tool I go over there and borrow from him and while I may have a whole bunch of different sockets once in a while you get in a situation where you need something special something different Noah is thoroughly equipped when it comes to tools. He seems to have everything for every situation. God's word, through God's word, through the scripture, we are thoroughly equipped. And we are complete. Every um, part is put in place. Something that is complete is not, even though it may, again, think of the example of a mechanic with, with a tractor or a car. A car is not complete if it has wheels and a transmission and an engine. There's more parts that go to it. And while that may be all the basics, um, it's not complete till every part is put in place. The scripture is, makes us thoroughly equipped and completed. It is sufficient. It is all the revelation that we need. <clears throat> Interestingly, in John chapter 21, in the very end of the book of John, John says that many other things There's many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded here. And he says if it was written, he supposes that even the world itself could not contain the books. So there's many things that Jesus did that we don't know about, but yet he has revealed everything that we need to know to know him and to live in obedience to him. What the Bible contains is sufficient. Divine revelation has ceased. Nothing more will be added to the word of God. There's a warning given in Revelations chapter 22 at the very end of the Bible. It says um, so much that nothing can be added or taken away from this book. <clears throat> If anyone adds to these, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That's a sobering um, warning there that's given to us, that nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. It is complete. There will be no further revelation. Revelation. Claims of further revelation or more things being added to the scripture are always attempts to undermine the authority of what has already been given. And yes, you know, we, our understanding of God's revelation of the scripture is not complete. At least mine is not. And we continue to learn more and more. And sometimes we use that phrase, that we, we discovered another truth in God's word. We just came to understand it. God didn't just reveal it. It was there. But our sinfulness, our our selfishness, is what keeps us from from understanding all of his revelation to us. So claims of further revelation are attempts to undermine the authority of what has been given. Now the fourth point, I'd like to talk about the story of the Bible, to view the scripture As a story that is communicated to us. So, why is it that the scripture is superior to all other books? Why why is this commitment to the scripture so important? And and why is that book more important than any other? Why should I be interested in what it is saying? It is the story of God's love and care for mankind that He created. He, He Just by his own will um, and word that was spoken, he created man and he made man different from the rest of the creation in that he made him in his own image to be his image bearer. It's a story of, of how much God loves mankind. It tells us how man rebelled against him. It tells us how man wandered away from him and the consequences of that. And then what God did to make it possible that sinful man could be redeemed and to one day live with him in eternity, forever, in a perfect place. God is not hiding from us as we think about him revealing his story to us. This is not like children playing hide and seek. When they play hide and seek, They may try and hide at a really good place where the it person um, is going to have to look really, really hard to find them. Of course, with hopes that eventually they will find them. That's not how God is. God has revealed himself. He wants us to know him. How bad does he want us to know him? So much that he gave his only son to die on the cross so that we could know him. God is not hiding. Yes, sometimes we don't see him, but it's not because he is hiding. He has revealed himself, but our sinfulness gets in the way. I think of the the musical Pilgrim. Many of you may have seen this as it was um, several times in the last couple of years, um, was given um, in this area. The musical Pilgrim is based on John Bunyan's story, Pilgrim's Progress. In this musical, um, we, we see Christian, if you're familiar with the story, um, you, you can understand what I'm, what I'm saying. The character Christian and his companions are traveling to Celestial City, and they meet a lot of obstacles and, and sometimes wander off course, and there's a lot of difficult things that they go through on their way, similar to, to our Christian lives. We face temptations, and we we wander away from God at times. But one of the outstanding... <clears throat> excuse me... <clears throat> One of the outstanding things about this musical, I think, is how that, so there's a a man dressed in white representing the king or God. And throughout this musical, I think he is always or almost always present on the stage. And as, as Christian and his companions stumble through life, and at times they, they, they don't know where to go. They wonder where God is. But this man is always there. Sometimes he is standing in front of them, but they're looking past him. They don't seem to see him. Sometimes he is there with his hand on Christian's shoulder, he is always there. He reveals himself. <clears throat> but we don't always see him because of our own blindness, our sin, and because we wander off the path. <clears throat> There's one account in scripture that I think of in Luke chapter 16 that I think conveys to us why it is so important that we hear this story. Luke chapter 16. Why we need to be committed to the scripture and understand the story that God is revealing to us. This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And from what I can understand, this is not an allegory, it's not hyperbole, it's not an exaggeration, but a true account that Jesus shared with the Pharisees. It says in verse 14 that the Pharisees derided him, or they were mocking him and scolding him here because of what he was teaching. And he said to them, there was a, in verse 19 I'll begin reading, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that I may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things And likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, and he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I think this sums up why it is, this story is so important to us. We see here two men at two different destinations, and they're separated by a gulf that is impossible to cross. And we see the one man begging for mercy, begging to have just a drop of water to relieve him of the torment that he is in. But no, that's impossible. He is at his final destination, and no one can cross over. So we see him then pleading, well, go back, go back to earth. Tell my brothers there so that they don't end up here where I am. But the response is, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. But he says, if, if you go back and they see someone rise from the dead, then they will believe it. He's acknowledging that, yes, they have the scripture, but they don't believe it. So send, send someone back from the dead so that they are convinced. But again, the answer is no, that won't convince them either. <clears throat> this is a sobering story and tells us why the scripture is so important. The Bible tells us the story of how we arrive at one or the other of those two destinations. What would determine our eternal destiny? Let's look then briefly at history and the impact of the scriptures. Uh, just just going through this real quickly, the early church, we see um, from the Word of God as well as, as other books that have been written, that the early church, well, I think of two phrases that, from the book of Acts that tell us um, the, the, the impact that the scriptures had on the early church. The apostles <clears throat> were uh, put into prison for their preaching there shortly after Jesus' ascension, And then miraculously released from that prison and went back to preaching. And the authorities again uh, arrested them. And their response is, we cannot but preach the things that we have seen and heard. The scripture was that important to them. We cannot but preach the things that we have seen and heard. And another account uh, a short time later where, again, they were in trouble with the authorities for what they were preaching and teaching. And their response is, we ought to obey God rather than man. There we see the early church and how important the scripture was to them. It didn't matter the cost. It didn't matter if it cost them their lives. Imprisonment. They were committed to the scriptures. Uh, we move then into uh, what we refer to sometimes as the Middle Ages. And we see a church that has become very corrupt. There, the church is run by men who are seeking power for themselves. Men who are trying to conquer the world. to to gain um, um, more lands and more power. uh, There's this mixture of church and state. They're they're combined. And uh, we know how that people were basically forced into the church, baptized as infants before they had any understanding or faith, and made to be members of the church. A church that is very corrupt. (coughs) Excuse me. But we realized that in the midst of that, there was a minority who sought to be obedient to the word of God, no matter what the cost was. The Anabaptist movement came out of that church setting where church and state were basically married to each other, and it was very corrupt. They said, no, we are going to be obedient to the word of God, no matter the cost. Some of the most cruel and gruesome torture is carried out by the church against Against those who were committed to the word of God. We are now in what we may refer to as the modern age. <clears throat> and the challenge I want to leave with you is whose voice will we listen to? What voice will we listen to today in a, in a time of vast information? A time of moral relativism where, where right and wrong is completely mixed up. A time of artificial intelligence as a handy guide. What voice will we listen to? today. For our church, a commitment to the scripture requires that there be teachers and pastors, that there be those who are willing and able to teach and preach the word, that there be regular meeting together to study God's word, and that God's word is much more than just head knowledge, but is a way of living. And lastly, that we have a faith in God, a relationship with Jesus Christ, The gift of his Holy Spirit that then reveals to us, convinces us that what his word said is indeed true and is worth giving our lives for. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we are grateful that we can gather like this this morning. We can have your word in our hands, your written word. Thank you for the scriptures, what they have revealed to us and continue to show us. Lord, we want to be committed to the Word of God, to obeying it, to following it, making it the guide of our lives, the voice that we listen to, where we go to for direction. It would not just be head knowledge for us, but it would be a way of life. Thank you that we have a freedom to to worship together, to study your Word, and to have it um, in our homes, in our hands, in our school. We know there's many places around the world where they cannot do this. And may we be faithful with this freedom that we have to use it for your honor and glory, to be diligent, to preach and teach your word, and take it to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.